the topic of ventricular arrhythmia risk assessment is, uh, to me, both interesting and uninteresting. Uninteresting in a way because uh, one can reduce it to a simple cookbook. Uh, and uh, a little more interesting if you go behind, a little bit behind the cookbook and try to uh, make rational judgments outside of, uh, outside of that uh, framework. But of course we have to talk about the framework in this uh, era where everything is evidence-based medicine. So uh, the reason uh, that we talk about ventricular arrhythmia risk assessment uh, is uh, numerous. We've, I've talked about it for a long time. And of course it's because a lot of people die suddenly and we would like to prevent that. And it becomes important because nowadays, of course, for the last two decades, the ICD can prevent sudden cardiac death. Uh, it doesn't prevent death, but at least it, it can uh, reverse a out-of-hospital uh, ventricular tachyarrhythmia. So that uh, much is true. And uh, one can therefore say that if you apply the ICD appropriately, that is to say, you will recruit, recruit, reduce all-cause mortality if the incidence of sudden cardiac death in the population that you use it in is relatively high in relationship to other cause mortality. And so our goal would be uh, to uniquely identify a group of people who had a very high risk of sudden cardiac death uh, out of proportion to kind of the general uh, patient population. Therefore, when we're talking about ventricular arrhythmia risk assessment, uh, another title for that talk could easily be indications for ICD implantation. Because if the patient's at risk for sudden cardiac death, as we'll go through, the ICD is the appropriate therapy. And so what I'd like to do is cover uh, some of the historic studies that lead us up to this point review some of the data from those studies, and then uh, we'll wind up with uh, kind of a, a uh, cookbook uh, or amalgamated cookbook approach to uh, this problem. So uh, there are a couple of questions uh, that are important in this uh, area. The first approach is that we took and that we still take is to try to identify a patient as high risk and intervene on a high-risk patient. And that still is the crux of our approach to therapy, but we also need to, uh, I think, think about whether we can identify particular patients as lower risk. And we're actually pretty good at identifying high-risk patients, but not so good at identifying lower-risk patients. Now, this slide, in some form, has appeared in 5,988 publications over the last two decades. Uh, but I think it makes a very important point, and let's just focus on the, on the top of it. Uh, and what we have listed here on the left-hand side, the bars going across, represent the, oh, actually more, close, more closely the uh, overall mortality in different patient populations and the bars on the right represent the total number of events. And of course the key to this slide is that those bars go in reverse directions. So that if one's talking about something in the order of 300,000 
uh, cardiac deaths, sudden deaths is a, uh, in the general population. The incidence in the general population, of course, is very low. And then one progressively defines subgroups, high-risk subgroups, in this case meaning people who are at risk for coronary disease, essentially, have a uh, higher risk of sudden deaths, but, uh, and, but account for fewer events. And when you get down to the people at highest risk, we'll talk about those studies, the made it one and must study, you really identify a patient population which is at very high risk, 35%, uh, but represents a fraction of the overall events. So in a societal point of view, uh, attacking those people will make a negligible impact on overall sudden cardiac death. Of course, if you're speaking to one individual patient with all those factors, that difference becomes very, very considerable. And where we fall in that is, of course, a question we're still wrestling with. So, we have large populations of patients who are at lower risk for sudden cardiac death. And in those patients, you know, generalized interventions are appropriate. What do I mean by that? Statins, aspirin, beta blockers are appropriate interventions in those patients. And of course, they have a lower cost, relatively speaking, and low morbidity. And in the patients who we would focus on as very high risk, those are people where we would use specific interventions. And of course, we're talking about defibrillators in those patients, and uh, those uh, uh, are high cost and higher morbidity, and one of the things I'd like to say, because uh, of course we're going to wind up saying a lot of people should get defibrillators, that is not a non-morbid uh, intervention in somebody, and there are all kinds of ways of describing that morbidity, but just think about carrying a big packet of uh, hard uh, metal underneath your chest for the rest of your life and trying to sleep and turn over with it and other serious things. Think about getting a shock and dreading the next one. I'm sure you've all seen patients like that. So they're wonderful, but they're, but they're not a no morbidity intervention. So again, most sudden cardiac death occurs in the top group, not in the bottom group. And in a population sense, uh, we have to do some other things uh, to reduce the risk of sudden cardiac death, or reduce the incidence of sudden cardiac death. So, in the, in the uh, cookbook things, one of the things we uh, sometimes forget about is that uh, we need to uh, take specific clinical histories, and uh, specifically, there are patients who have had arrhythmia events or presumptive arrhythmia events. And those patients we're talking about are syncope. Now that's a separate lecture, of course, and there are a multitude of causes of syncope, and it's incumbent upon you to identify syncope as a rhythmic syncope rather than something else. But if that patient has had an episode of arrhythmic syncope, that really may moves him way up on the scale of uh, indications for intervention. Obviously, if they've had an episode of just Sustained VT or uh, ventricular fibrillation, that counts as an arrhythmia event. And one doesn't have to uh, go through uh, uh, evidence-based medicine for those patients. Well, we do have evidence-based medicine. Uh, and then there are patients without arrhythmia events, and that's the bulk of patients. And those are the patients that we're talking about really trying to uh, prevent, to uh, 
assess their risk, and that we're of course talking about prophylactic therapy. These are patients without arrhythmia events, and uh, we deal with them in many different ways, but if they make, you make a decision that they need to have a defibrillator, remember that the act of your putting a defibrillator in does not change any of their recommendations in terms of can I travel, can I fly, can I drive, and so forth. It's not the act of putting the device in that puts it at risk for events. It's their underlying disease. A lot of people uh, think if they got a defibrillator, that's it. They can't drive on the highway. They can't do anything else. And that's simply not true in the prophylactic group. Okay, what about uh, studies, and we're just going to review this fairly quickly, what about studies that uh, speak to the issue of preventing sudden death in patients with arrhythmia events? And yes, we do have evidence-based medicine that uh, ICDs are superior to medical therapy, and there are a number of trials. They occurred in the 90s. And we'll just briefly review the AVID trial, which is amiodarone versus implantable defibrillator trial in patients who had had uh, a, an arrhythmia, and they, this, boy, I, there were arguments going on all over the place as to whether, what we should do with patients who had had a cardiac arrest, did they warrant a defibrillator or not, and although everybody, of course, believed that they did, this really is the first trials that, that gave us uh, proof that that was, in fact, the case. Ten years ago, and that was reported in the New England Journal of Medicine, and the patient population that they addressed were survivors of ventricular fibrillation or sustained ventricular tachycardia. Uh, those were survivors of, of ventricular fibrillation or ventricular, sustained ventricular tachycardia that didn't have an immediate and reversible cause for that arrhythmia. And they randomized those patients to antiarrhythmics or to ICDs Randomization to antiarrhythmics was essentially randomization to amiodarone, and there were a handful of people who had the sotalol and some other drugs, but essentially this was an amiodarone versus ICD trial. And, uh, you know, you can display the results in a number of ways, uh, but uh, they had a clearly improved uh, survival. And uh, at year three, there was a 25% mortality in the group of patients who had received an ICD, and in the antiarrhythmic group, a 35% mortality. Uh, so I always hate this percent reduction of mortality, because it always gets me confused. People say I have a 20% reduction in mortality. You start with a 1% mortality. It's not too meaningful. This is a pretty substantial reduction in mortality, from 35 to 25% uh, at three years. And so that uh, provided us with a basis for saying, yes, if you've had one of these events and you don't have a reversible cause, you ought to get a device. What about people who don't have a device? So look, again, the traditional approach is to identify patients who have high risk. And there are a number of parameters that we have looked at that uh, are used. Of course, the mainstay that we're going to harp on and that you're all aware of uh, is the left ventricular ejection fraction uh, a determination in number that I uh, clearly have a love-hate relationship with because it's treated 
as a precise uh, absolute number that defines the patient uh, completely. I go to the OR uh, and the anesthesiologist always want to know what the EF is. They never want to know whether the patient has controlled heart failure or not. And if the EF is 20%, they go, oh my God. And if it's 35% that the patient has bad heart failure, yeah, that's okay. It's only one number. It happens to be the number we've chosen for these things, but really needs to be put into and thought about as more than an uh, absolute. Historically, of course, the first things we looked at were PVCs and non-sustained VT, and they have been fairly much discarded as a way of looking at risk, and that's probably a little bit unfair. I'm not going to talk about the signal average ECG because that has been discarded and that's probably fair. A heart rate variability is an interesting concept. It does have some relation to risk, but it really doesn't, uh, hasn't panned out as adding significant information to the rest of our assessment. And then we'll talk a little bit at the end about uh, microvolt T-wave alternans, an interesting concept that may have some applicability. As applied initially as an identifier of high risk, it really wasn't helpful. And we'll also address the issue of EP studies, which have been largely discarded, but I think have a role in certain uh, places as we will talk about. And let's just talk a little bit about the information. And this is a cumulative slide uh, to talk about PVCs and left ventricular ejection fraction. And basically, I put it up to tell you that yes, if a patient has frequent ventricular ectopy and complex ventricular ectopy, that is a marker of a patient who is at a little more risk. And if you uh, put that uh, PVCs with people who have LV dysfunction, uh, it does separate out a group that has a little bit worse prognosis. So. Uh, you don't make a decision based on this, and of course the, the fallacy that we'll briefly talk about that we fell into was to treat PVCs as independently important and not just a marker, but they are a marker of people who have worse disease. There are a lot of other things that uh, mark patients besides left ventricular ejection fraction. And, and of course the, the mistake we made, and I put this up, this is actually taken off of the um, Heart Rhythm Society, has a, has a nice uh, little summary of history of electrophysiology and some of the advances in it and highlights certain things. And uh, the CAST trial was 1989, and that was a trial that was uh, the PVC suppression thought, uh, uh, hypothesis. And... Um, of course, uh, that trial took patients post myocardial infarction. Uh, those who had PPCs were randomized to treatment with enconide and flecainide and some other drugs. And the graph on the, that's sketched in there, you can't read it too well, but essentially those who were put on drugs did much worse than those who were not. A, a couple of things about this trial. I think it was very important. It says it's a landmark study. I think that's fair. It certainly changed practice at that time, and it also changed thinking uh, about how we should approach some of these problems, which is uh, an important emphasis. Uh, they say it ensured that future therapies would be tested on hard endpoints like mortality, and that's 
clearly an important thing, although sometimes I think we get a little carried away with the fact that now, to me, medicine involves mortality, of course, but it involves other things also. And we get so focused on uh, whether we should do things be, to prevent mortality that we sometimes forget about other things. But clearly, for studies, it's important that one looks at the uh, hard endpoints. Uh, and uh, it uh, clearly also indicated to us that we're not anywhere near as smart as we think we are. And although it might have seemed obvious that suppressing PVCs would uh, help, it just shows that we don't understand uh, the mechanisms behind lethal arrhythmias terribly well, and certainly uh, that this is not an approach that helped. However, one of the things that isn't commented upon too often is look at those numbers up there. The, uh, the top dotted line, which is the people who are untreated, look at the mortality. It doesn't, you know, they had a great survival. Uh, and we know these are potent drugs, and if we had thought about it ahead of time, if you took people with a two-year post-myocardial infarction with a two-year 2% mortality and did almost anything active to them, their mortality is going to be worse. And it is worse with drugs. But uh, the, the idea that these drugs can't be used shouldn't be taken from this drug. And, and there's sort of been a... Uh, a, re a revulsion from using the drugs in a number of other circumstances, which I think is overstated. I told you you could go down sidelines, but I didn't promise myself not to go down sidelines. Okay. So where do we where do we go? Well, there are a couple of there are a number of trials, so I can only highlight a couple. But I would like to review them a little bit because they are so uh, seminal in the way we look at these problems. Uh, two trials were uh, uh, done in an attempt to assess risk and particularly assess the efficacy of intervention. And the first trial that was reported was the made it one trial, uh, and the second was the uh, MUST trial. MUST trial, I, I like for a number of reasons. We were participated in it, but what a convoluted way to get an acronym. Multi-center unsustained tachycardia trial. <laughs> so, uh, and and was sustained, then it became unsustained? Well, instead of non-sustained, yeah, of course, it's it's right. nobody yeah. can pronounce M-N-S-T-T, so and it has none of the, none of the emphasis of the must trial. Anyway, uh, in 1996, in the New England Journal of Medicine, the Made It One trial was reported, and uh, you can read the title and the list of investigators. Of course, the star represents uh, a couple of pages in the New England Journal of uh, people from all over the place who participated in this trial. And actually, this uh, trial, I think, in particularly uh, when considered in the time that it was performed, I think was really a nicely conceived trial. And they took uh, patients who had had prior myocardial infarction, so we're in the coronary artery uh, disease spectrum. Uh, they had non-sustained ventricular tachycardia. They had a reduced ejection fraction, and we're going to talk about the numbers in here, and uh, this is part of it that gets me irritated is uh, the idea that uh, 35 is substantially different from 30, that it's substantially different from 40. 
in some magical way is um, uh, offensive. But they said less than 35 by whatever technique. And they took patients who had had EP studies, that is ventricular stimulation studies, and who had inducible sustained ventricular tachycardia that couldn't be suppressed by the administration of intravenous procaine amide. Now historically, we knew at that time that those patients did badly. That the patients who had inducible sustained VT and who couldn't be suppressed in the EP lab had a very bad outcome. So what they did was said, okay, let's think of the worst group of patients we can think of and let's randomize those patients uh, and see whether the ICD uh, works or not. And we'll randomize them to antiarrhythmic therapy, again, amiodarone, or ICD. And there are a couple of amazing things about this trial. So you're all familiar with cardiology trials and, and interventional angioplasty trials and so forth and so on. Look at this, 147 patients they started with. They randomized 147 patients. And in that group of patients, they got those results. And they had to stop the trial because the statistics went off the wall. And at three years, one has a, what is it, 43% mortality versus 26% mortality, which is an amazing uh, reduction in mortality. Because they chose such a high-risk group for sudden cardiac death, and because they put defibrillators in them, they very easily demonstrated how effective that would be. How many patients have been randomized to see if angioplasty reduces mortality? I mean, it's, it's astounding, really, the difference here. And the mortality reduction uh, is really very, very remarkable. So we have identified by taking low EF, non-sustained VT, and inducible VT, a group of patients who are at very high risk for uh, arrhythmia, as demonstrated by the device preventing mortality. There's no other way it could prevent mortality. Just displayed another way, you can see that those differences continued over the, the uh, time of the uh, study. The MUSH trial is interesting for a number of points of view. It took a little bit of a different approach, took longer to do, and uh, reported a couple of years later uh, in 1999, um, also in the New England Journal, and th that had a different uh, uh, design. The most trial was not designed as a trial of defibrillator therapy. It just turned out that way, uh, somewhat fortuitously. Again, patients who had had prior myocardial infarctions were included. Patients had to have non-sustained VT, and in this trial they had to have an ejection fraction of less than 40% for <coughs> entry and they had to have inducible sustained VT. Now, just parenthetically, they had a patient, a group of people who were recruited in, had their EP study, and did not have inducible VT, and they followed those patients, the so-called registry patients, and, and reported them separately. And, and 
Inducible VT clearly is a marker of bad mortality, but unfortunately, non-inducibility is not an adequate marker of good survival. In other words, the mortality in the control group was still higher than you would want it to be, uh, but much lower. So it was about 8 to 10% at one year versus 35%. And they were randomized to no therapy or EP-guided therapy. Uh, and the trial uh, was interesting because it spanned the time. It started when ICDs had to be implanted by opening the chest. There was a little reluctance to do so in many patients. And about halfway through the trial, uh, the non-thoracotomy leads became available, and ICDs then became a relatively simple operation. And that resulted in um, what we see here in the numbers, the ICD patients, that those, those, they were randomized to EP-guided therapy versus no uh, therapy. And the groups of, for those two were the same, because they were randomized. But about halfway through the study, all of us who were doing these uh, people said, uh, good, I can put an ICD in. I don't have to mess around with amiodarone or quinidine or something else. We can just put an ICD in. And so after they became available, almost everybody got an ICD. Before non-thoracotomy, ICDs became available. A lot of patients got anti-rheumatic uh, therapy. And uh, the differences were uh, profound. And uh, that is to say, those patients who look at year five, again, very marked uh, changes, 25% mortality versus 50% approximately in patients who did not get an ICD. Really uh, marked mortality improvement, and uh, you know that's the curve, and it's really uh, remarkable. And the numbers are uh, on the left in terms of uh, proportion of patients with events. So those two trials uh, put together uh, told us that if we had patients who had a reduced ejection fraction, 35, 40, whatever, if they had inducible arrhythmia at EP study, the devices were clearly indicated. But uh, the idea was, can we make their assessment easier? And so the MADIC group uh, performed the made it two trial, which they reported in 2002, about five years ago. And uh, this uh, trial um, did things a little bit differently. Uh, essentially, they just said, tell me the EF, and that's our decision making. Well, they had to have coronary disease. They had to have had an MI, they had to have be at least a month out from their myocardial infarction, and they had, their EF had to be less than 30%. And I don't know why they had to be over 21 instead of 25 or 15, but anyway, that's pretty irrelevant. Uh, and those numbers randomized the patients, give some of them an ICD, don't give an ICD to the others. And they did a good job, and they matched medical therapy, and they were on good medical therapy, they were on beta blockers and ACE inhibitors, the whole. Uh, work. So they did uh, quite well with that. They, they really didn't do any EP testing with the device and haven't reported any results of that, so we don't really have any data for that. And then they followed and uh, wanted to see what happened. And what happened 
isn't entirely surprising, okay, uh, because these are pretty much all now non-thoracotomy devices, so putting a device in has, should have almost no mortality. And of course, the patients who uh, had a defibrillator survived better, and the statistics were highly significant at the .007 level, and they were, they're real. Uh, but they're in order, not quite in order of magnitude, there's substantially less difference than there was in the made it one and must trial. So we have identified a high risk subgroup, but we've re identified a sick subgroup, people less than the 30% EF. And the defibrillator certainly can save lives, but those patients die of other things also, advancing coronary disease, heart failure, and so forth. So um, this is. Uh, sort of taken over in terms of thinking about ICDs. If the EF is down, here we are, and we can reduce mortality. Well, uh, that was uh, fine, uh, but it covered coronary disease, so we waited and waited and waited and waited some more for the results of another trial, the SCUD-HEFT trial, Sudden Cardiac Death and Heart Failure trial which then was reported, uh, I hope I have it, but I don't remember exactly. Uh, this involved, a, and I put these up, remember that made it one trial and needed 170 patients, and this one needs uh, 2,500 patients. Uh, these people had congestive heart failure, class two or class three, they had to have an ejection fraction of less than 35%. We're a pretty sick group with a median of 25%. And uh, fortunately, they were about evenly divided between ischemic and non-ischemic disease. So now we're finally going to get some data in non-ischemic cardiomyopathy uh, and uh, treatment. And their randomization was uh, a one-to-one to one randomization, placebo, amiodarone, and uh, what they call a shock-only ICD. And we can talk about differences in ICD sort of at the end, if you like. And it, it really took a while. Um, we kept awaiting these results and awaiting these results. And, and the reason it took a while is that the results are, again, highly statistically significant, but the differences are considerably less between the two groups uh, than, we, than we talked about before. Basically, amiodarone doesn't help very much in terms of mortality, not much better than placebo. Remember, all placebo patients got beta blockers. Okay, so uh, a lot of the trials that showed amiodarone had some benefit were trials where people didn't get beta blockers in the control group. And the ICD people did better, uh, and the differences were significant. And, but now we're talking about a five-year event rate of 36% versus 29%. Very significant, and if you're one of those people, it's very meaningful to you, but quite different from what we were talking about before. And that... Uh, applied uh, both to ischemic heart disease on the top and non-ischemic disease, and uh, something that caused consternation for many people uh, is that the difference was in class two patients and not in class three, and that is in contradistinction to most other trials, which continue to show improvement in survival even in patients with class three heart failure. So we've sort of discarded that part of the uh, of the SCUDHAF trial. We don't say that if you have class 3 failure, an ICD doesn't do you any good. 
So we have identified high-risk patients and we've achieved mortality reduction. And getting back to the slide uh, that started this, we have a hierarchy of risk for very high risk. And in those patients at very high risk, the mortality reduction is really dramatic. And then we have intermediate groups that are at high risk and have a mortality reduction, and the reduction is less dramatic. And these things are indeed expensive. And unfortunately, there's a relatively low all-cause mortality reduction and fewer ICD discharges in MEDA-2 and SCUD-HEF than one would hope for. Maybe, I guess that's pretty sick to say you hope for an ICD discharge, but anyway. And, uh, and finally, this whole approach presents a, a relatively uh, small number of patients uh, in the overall scheme of things. So, right now we have some indicators of high risk. Is there anything we can do to take those patients and say they have lower risk? Well, EP studies do identify patients at lower risk, but not by the judgment of most people at low enough risk to say, don't put in a defibrillator. And we don't have a trial that takes people in any of these categories and does an EP study and has it negative and then randomizes those patients to defibrillator. So we really don't have any data as to whether or not a negative EP study does mean that you don't really need a defibrillator. All we really know is that the positive study clearly does mean that you need it. Heart rate variability, unfortunately, again, hasn't gotten to the stage where we can uh, use that. It's also signal average DCG, and so I'd just like to finish up. We're going to finish up early uh, so we can have a, a discussion about the subject. Yeah? Just on a point you made before, it's interesting that the placebo, your, your ICD group and your placebo group, your either no treatment or regular treatment, your beta blockers, ACEs, et cetera, or your amio, amio group, they don't have an insertion of a sham device. Right. Because you said there are very few firings right. at all in the device of the ASD, so you wonder if it's the ASD firing that's causing the decreased mortality. Well, I don't mean, I don't mean, you know, I. Device itself, putting it in. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know how to answer that question on an intellectual basis. <laughs> on an emotional basis, I can answer it easily. Uh, you know, uh, there's a. I'm glad you asked the question because we have, I think, unfortunately, gotten to the, such a uh, stage of of non-thought about this that you just. Uh, Oh, this guy's got coronary disease, get an echo, and if, if, if the report comes back at 30%, then he gets a device. And somehow, you know, we're stuck in that mode, and I, I think we should still be thinking about whether that's the right mode to be stuck in. Because, uh, I mean, in the Made It 1 and Made It 2, Made It 1 trial and the MUST trial, I mean, I, I don't see how you can argue possibly that the device isn't important and indicated. But when you get down to these other patients, you know, then you have, and we'll talk about it a little bit at the end, then you have, okay, so the echo showed an EF of 35%, but last year it was 40. Should I repeat it again and see whether it's 40? Does that really make a difference? You know, um, 
Should, should I just put ICDs in my whole practice that has, uh, has an injection fraction of less than 35%? What about the 92-year-old who's referred down to me? I'm not, I'm not no kidding, <laughs> okay? Uh, because uh, an asymptomatic 92-year-old with an EF of 30% for a device. Is that the, you know, so, I think it's fair to ask those questions. And I, I, that's a point I obviously feel very strongly about. Well, what about microwave, uh, microvolt, T-wave volts, and Um Do you guys know what that is at all? Well, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting uh, study, which is comes from a bunch of theoretic bases. But basically, it's been known for a long time that if you have an electrocardiogram where the T-wave alternate, you have T-wave alternate that those patients are at high risk for arrhythmia. But that's an extraordinarily uncommon phenomenon. So then, you know, one of these electrical geniuses uh, decided that he would look at microvolt changes and beat-to-beat uh, -beat changes in the T-wave, and there are some things that you need. You need a high heart rate, fundamentally. So you have to do it with exercise or with pacing. Uh, and, what? Uh, usually about 110. Yeah. Uh, so it's not exactly, it's not, it's not like, uh, you know, easy to, to do. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, I'm going to show you some results, some summary results. Unfortunately, there's a large group of people who have indeterminate tests for a variety of reasons. So I don't know that it's going to really make, a, make a, a big hit, although the the uh, idea is if it could identify, and this is going to, this is being looked at, and there, I'll show you some studies that sort of aren't controlled studies and don't look at it yet, but the idea would be, okay, we do, somebody meets the criteria, and if we do a microvolt T-wave alternance, can we not put a defibrillator in? Can that allow us to say their, their mortality is low, and we don't have to do it? That's really the idea. And so, uh, so you do the test, and it has certain criteria that say it's positive, or uh, indeterminate, or negative. And basically, people lump indeterminate and negative. And they say, what's the positive predictive value? And I don't really want to spend too much time on that, because it does identify people at higher risk, but it's not, that's not where its utility would be. And then you would say the negative predictive value. And these are summaries of 19 perspective studies, but these are not treatment studies, these are not randomized studies, okay, these are just observational studies. And a number sort of jumps out at you, and it says post-MI, if the study is negative, that has a predictive value, if they have a normal uh, uh, study, uh, that has a negative predictive value of 99.4%. In other words, nobody dies. Unfortunately, as nice as that looks, if the patient has CHF, in other words, a reduced ejection fraction, the uh, negative predictive value falls. Now, it falls to the low or mid-90s, uh, depending upon certain circumstances. And remember, these are uh, small studies. But it may be worthwhile using this approach and doing a randomized trial of people who uh, meet some criteria for uh, ICD implantation but may be borderline 
and consider whether this is a way of uh, legitimately uh, sparing those people in ICD implantation. Uh, that just really says the same thing in negative T-wave Altanan. Certainly their arrhythmia sur free survival is better than if it's positive, but it's not. It's around 90%, i.e. 10% don't die. That's about the same figure, by the way, for an EP study. So uh, we're not entirely sure how we, how we do it. So um, the way I approach this problem is I think, number one, the clinical assessment is important. Obviously, if they've had an event, uh, that kicks them up in the, in the category uh, remarkably. Uh, part of the clinical assessment uh, looks at other things, like their monitoring, ejection fraction, heart failure class. One has to assess LV function. Now, I'm going to now drop percentages, LVEF 40, 30, and I'm going to say markedly reduced moderately reduced and minimally reduced. And what does that mean? I, I often get an echo on somebody and sometimes I get a, a gated blood pool scan on the same patient and they'll both have an ejection fraction of 30% and one assessor will call that markedly reduced ejection fraction and another moderately reduced ejection fraction. Markedly reduced, I'm talking about in the 20s, uh, really. And, and those people, I think, now, I don't think there's a test or issue that I can do that says you really shouldn't get an ICD. So moderately reduced, what does that mean? That means 30 to 40 in that range. You know, probably many of them should get an ICD uh, insertion. And we can do some other things. I think if they have congestive heart failure, they, they should. I think if they have Conduction abnormalities, particularly left bundle branch block, that's a subject, separate subject to biventricular pacing. Yeah, I think they should probably get a device also. You know, probably if they have a lot of ventricular arrhythmia on their holter, that would also make me more uh, inclined to put a device in. If they had a normal microvolta wave voltanans, I think you could say possibly no. If it's re modestly reduced, what does that mean? 35 to 45, probably. Those probably patients probably, without an event, shouldn't get a device. If there's somebody that you're particularly worried about in that group, you know, an EP study can be done in that group, and if they have inducible sustained VT, they ought to have a device. Uh, you ought to have some reason for, <laughs> for doing that. But uh, that certainly would tip you from no to yes. And uh, if you want, if those patients had a normal microvolta uh, uh, T-wave Voltanen study, uh, that would be a no. Again, that's a cookbook. But hopefully we've put some uh, additional light on some of the things that go into making those decisions uh, and can at least think about it rather than just looking at the ejection fraction and saying, oh, his myocardial infarction was three months ago and his ejection fraction is 32% and he needs a device. Who does the microvolt? Yeah, it's hard to get. We actually don't do it. We're going to have to do it because it's a little unclear. It costs, uh, it costs a hospital about $150,000 to get the equipment. And it costs, uh, and you have to have a technician to do a stress test.
So it's not cheap. And uh, insurance pay for it. Uh, insurance does pay for it. I mean, the com I mean, it's a company, you know, so they're promoting it like crazy. Sure. And you know, if in fact it could tell you, if it if we if, if it could tell you that if it's negative, you don't need to put a device in. It would be very valuable. If it tells you, you probably don't have to. Try telling that to your patient. <laughs> Try telling him, I mean, you meet all the criteria, but maybe you don't quite because this is negative, and that means you only have a 10% risk of dying. In a study, 10% might be pretty low, but to an individual, it doesn't sound so low. So I think the book is still open in terms of that. I'm hopeful for something that can do better than we're doing right now. Not that I mind putting, I love to put ICDs in, okay? I mean, uh, it's wonderful, you know, but uh, it's a lot of money. It's a 300,000 sudden deaths, say half of them get an ICD, 150,000, this is by the way about how many are put in, cost of an ICD at least $50,000. That's at least two days in Iraq. You can't afford that. Hmm. And they'll, they'll have like five years, right? Four, four, six years? Yeah, and then you have to change the battery. Yeah.